Section 4 of The Singing Bone, or The Adventures of Dr. Thorndyke, by R. Austin Freeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Case of Premeditation, Part 2. Rival Sleuth Hounds. Related by Christopher Jervis, M.D. The half-hour that follows breakfast, when the fire has, so to speak, got into its stride, and the morning pike throws up its clouds of incense, is perhaps the most agreeable in the whole day especially so when a sombre sky brooding over the town hints at streets pervaded by the chilly morning air and hoots from protesting tugs upon the river tell of lingering mists legacy of the lately vanished night the autumn morning was raw the fire burned jovially i thrust my slippered feet towards the blaze and meditated on nothing in particular with cat-like enjoyment presently a deproving grunt from thorndyke attracted my attention and i looked round lazily he was extracting with a pair of office shears the readable portions of the morning paper and had paused with a small cutting between his finger and thumb bloodhounds again said he we shall be hearing presently of the revival of the ordeal by fire and a juiced comfortable ordeal too on a morning like this i said stroking my legs ecstatically what is the case he was about to reply when a sharp rat-tat from the little brass knocker announced a disturber of our peace Thorndyke stepped over to the door and admitted a police inspector in uniform, and I stood up and presenting my dorsal aspect to the fire, prepared to combine bodily comfort with attention to business. I believe I am speaking to Dr. Thorndyke, said the officer, and as Thorndyke nodded, he went on. My name, sir, is Fox, Inspector Fox of the Baseford Police. Perhaps you've seen the morning paper. Thorndyke held up the cutting and, placing a chair by the fire, asked the inspector if he had breakfasted. "'Thank you, sir, I have,' replied Inspector Fox. "'I came up to town by the late train last night so as to be here early, and stayed at an hotel. You see from the paper that we've had to arrest one of our own men. It's rather awkward, you know, sir.' "'Very,' agreed Thorndyke. "'Yes, it's bad for the force, and bad for the public, too. But we had to do it. There was no way out at what we could see. Still, we should like the accused where every chance, both for our sake and his own.' So the chief constable thought he'd like to have your opinion on the case, and he thought that perhaps you might be willing to act for the defence. Let us have the particulars, said Thorndyke, taking a writing pad from a drawer and dropping into his armchair. Begin at the beginning, he added, and tell us all you know. Well, said the inspector, after a preliminary cough, to begin with the murdered man, his name is Pratt. He was a retired prison warder, and was employed as steward by General O'Gorman, who was a retired prison governor. You may have heard of him in connection with his pack of bloodhounds. Well, Pratt came down from London yesterday evening by a train arriving at Baseford at 6.30. He was seen by the guard, the ticket collector, and the outside porter. The porter saw him leave the station at 6.37. General O'Gorman's house is about half a mile from the station. At five minutes to seven, the general and a gentleman named Anford and the general's housekeeper and Mrs. Parton found Pratt lying dead in the avenue that leads up to his house. He had apparently been stabbed for there was a lot of blood about, and a knife, a Norwegian knife, was lying on the ground near the body. Mrs. Parton thought she heard someone in the avenue calling out for help, and as Pratt was just due, he came out with a lantern. She met the general and Mr. Anford, and all three seemed to have caught sight of the body at the same moment. Mr. Anford cycled down to us at once with the news. We sent for a doctor, and went back with Mr. Anford, and took a sergeant with me. We arrived at twelve minutes past seven, and then the general, who had galloped his horse over the meadows each side of the avenue without having seen anybody, fetched out his bloodhounds and led them up to the knife. All three hounds took up the scent at once. I held the leash of one of them, and I took us across the meadows without a pause or a falter, over stiles and fences, along a lane, out into the town, and then, 
One after the other, they crossed the road in a beeline to the police station, bolted in at the door, which stood open, and made straight for the desk, where a supernumerary officer named Ellis was writing. They made a rare to-do, struggling to get at him, and it was as much as we could manage to hold them back. As for Ellis, he turned as pale as a ghost. Who was anyone else in the room? asked Thorndyke. Ah, oh, yes, there were two constables and a messenger. We led the hands up to them, but the brutes wouldn't take any notice of them. They wanted Ellis. And what did you do? While we arrested Ellis, of course, couldn't do anything else, especially with the general there. What had the general to do with it? asked Thorndyke. He's a JP and a late governor of Daltmore, and it was his hounds that had run the man down. But we must have arrested Ellis in any case. Is there anything against the accused man? Yes, there is. Ian Pratt were on distinctly unfriendly terms. They were old comrades, for Ellis was in the Civil Guard at Portland when Pratt was warder there. He was pensioned off on the service because he'd got his left forefinger chopped off. But lately, they had some unpleasantness about a woman, a parlour maid of the generals. It seems that Ellis, who is a married man, paid the girl too much attention, or Pratt thought he did, and Pratt warned Ellis off the premises. Since then, they had not been on speaking terms. And what sort of a man is Ellis? A remarkably decent fellow, he always seemed. Quiet, steady, good-natured. I should have said he wouldn't hurt a fly. We all liked him. Better than we liked Pratt, in fact. Poor Pratt was what we call an old soldier. Sly, you know, sir. A bit of a sneak. You searched and examined Ellis, of course? Yes, there was nothing suspicious about him, except that he had two purses. But he said he picked up one of them, a small pigskin patch, on the footpath of the Thorpe Road yesterday afternoon, and there was no reason to disbelieve him. At any rate, the purse was not Pratt's. Thorndyke made a note on his pad and then asked, There were no bloodstains or marks on the clothing? No, his clothing was not marked or disarranged in any way. Any cuts, scratches or bruises on his person? None whatever, replied the inspector. At what time did you arrest Ellis? Half past seven, exactly. Have you ascertained what the movements were? Had he been near the scene of the murder? Yes, he'd been to Thorpe and would pass the gates of the avenue on his way back, and he was later than usual in returning, though not later than he has often been before. And now, as to the murdered man, has the body been examined? Yes, I had Dr. Ill's report before I left. There were no less than seven deep knife wounds all on the left side of the back. There was a great deal of blood on the ground, and Dr. Eels thinks Pratt must have bled to death in a minute or two. Do the wounds correspond with the knife that was found? I asked the doctor that, and he said yes, though he wasn't going to swear to any particular knife. However, that point is not of much importance. The knife was covered with blood, and it was found close to the body. What has been done with it, by the way? I asked Thorndyke. A sergeant always with me picked it up and rolled it in his handkerchief to carry in his pocket. I took it from him, just as it was, and locked it in a dispatch box. Has the knife been recognised as Ellis's property? No, sir, it hasn't. Were there any recognisable footprints or marks of a struggle? Thorndyke asked. The inspector grinned sheepishly. Oh, I haven't examined the spot, of course, sir, he said. But after the general's horse and the bloodhounds and the general on foot and me and a gardener and the sergeant and Mr. Anford had been over it twice, going and returning, why, you see, sir, exactly, exactly. Said Thorndyke. Well, Inspector, I shall be pleased to act for the defence. It seems to me that the case against Ellis is in some respects rather inconclusive. The Inspector was frankly amazed. It certainly hadn't struck me in that light, sir, he said. No? Well, that is my view, and I think the best plan will be for me to come down with you and investigate matters on the spot. The Inspector assented cheerfully, and when we had provided him with the newspaper, we withdrew to the laboratory to consult timetables and prepare for the expedition. You are coming, I suppose, Jervis? said Thorndyke. If I shall be of any use, I replied. 
"'Of course you will,' said he. Two heads better than one, and by the look of things I shall say that ours will be the only ones with any sense in them. We will take the research case, of course, and we may as well have a camera with us. I see there is a train from Charing Cross in twenty minutes.' For the first half of the journey Thorndyke sat in his corner, alternately conning over his notes and gazing with thoughtful eyes out of the window. I could see that the case pleased him, and was careful not to break in upon his train of thought. Presently, however, he put away his notes, and began to fill his pipe with a more companionable air, and then the inspector, who had been wriggling with impatience, opened fire. "'So you think, sir, that you see a way out for Ellis?' "'I think there is a case for the defence," replied Thorndyke. "'In fact, I call the evidence against him rather flimsy.' The inspector gasped. "'But the knife, sir? What about the knife?' "'Well,' said Thorndyke, "'what about the knife? Whose knife was it? You don't know. It was covered in blood.' Whose blood? You don't know. Let us assume, for the sake of argument, that it was the murderer's knife. Then the blood in it was Pratt's blood. But if it was Pratt's blood, when the hounds had smelt it, they should have led you to Pratt's body. For blood gives you a very strong scent. But they did not. They ignored the body. The inference seems to be that the blood on the knife was not Pratt's blood. The inspector took off his cap and gently scratched the back of his head. You're perfectly right, sir, he said. I'd never thought of that. None of us had. Then pursued Thorndyke. Let us assume that the knife was Pratt's. If so, it would seem to have been used in self-defence. But this was a Norwegian knife, a clumsy tool, not a weapon at all, which takes an appreciable time to open and requires the use of two free hands. Now had Pratt both hands free? Certainly not, after the attack had commenced. There were seven wounds, all on the left side of the back, which indicates that he had held the murderer locked in his arms, and that the murderer's arms were around him. Also, incidentally, that the murderer is right-handed. But still, let us assume that the knife was Pratt's. Then the blood on it was that of the murderer. Then the murderer must have been wounded. But Ellis was not wounded. Then Ellis is not the murderer. The knife doesn't help us at all. The inspector puffed out his cheeks and blew softly. If you're getting out of my depth, he said. Still, sir, you can't get over the bloodhounds. They tell us distinctly that the knife is Ellis's knife. I don't see any answer to that. There is no answer, because there has been no statement. The bloodhounds have told you nothing. You have drawn certain inferences from their actions, but those inferences may be totally wrong, and they are certainly not evidence. You don't seem to have much opinion of bloodhounds, the inspector remarked. As agents for the detection of crime, replied Thorndyke, I regard them as useless. You cannot put a bloodhound in the witness box. You can get no intelligible statement from it. If it possesses any knowledge, it has no means of communicating it. The fact is, he continued, that the entire system of using bloodhounds for criminal detection is based on a fallacy. In the American plantations, these animals were used with great success for tracking runaway slaves. But the slave was a known individual. All that was required was to ascertain his whereabouts. That is not the problem that is presented in the detection of a crime. The detective is not concerned in establishing the whereabouts of a known individual, but in discovering the identity of an unknown individual, and for this purpose bloodhounds are useless. They may discover such identity, but they cannot communicate their knowledge. If the criminal is unknown, they cannot identify him. If he is known, the police have no need of the bloodhound. To return to our present case, Thorndyke resumed after a pause, we have employed certain agents, the hounds, with whom we are not on rapport, as the spiritualists would say, and we have no medium. The hound possesses a special sense, the olfactory, which in man is quite rudimentary. He thinks, so to speak, in terms of smell, and his thoughts are untranslatable to beings in whom the sense of smell is undeveloped. 
we have presented to the hound a knife, and he discovers in it certain odorous properties. He discovers similar or related odorous properties in a tract of land, and a human individual, Ellis. We cannot verify his discoveries, or ascertain their nature. What remains? All that we can say is that there appears to exist some odorous relation between the knife and the man Ellis. But until we can ascertain the nature of that relation, we cannot estimate its evidential value or bearing. All the other evidence is the product of your imagination and that of the general. There is at present no case against Ellis. He must have been pretty close to the place in the murder round, said the inspector. So probably were many other people, answered Thorndyke. But had he time to wash and change, because he would have needed it. Suppose he would, the inspector agreed dubiously. Undoubtedly, there were seven wounds which would have taken some time to inflict. Now we can't suppose that Pratt stood passively while the other man stabbed him. Indeed, as I have said, the position of the wounds shows that he did not. There was a struggle. The two men were locked together. One of the murderer's hands was against Pratt's back. Probably both hands were, one clasping and the other stabbing. There must have been blood on one hand, and probably on both. But you say there was no blood on Ellis, and there doesn't seem to have been time or opportunity for him to wash. Well, it's a mysterious affair, said the inspector, but I don't see how you're going to get over the bloodhounds. Thorndyke shrugged his shoulders impatiently. The bloodhounds are an obsession, he said. The whole problem really centres around the knife. The questions are, whose knife was it, and what was the connection between it and Ellis? There is a problem, Jervis, he continued, turning to me, that I submit for your consideration. Some of the possible solutions are exceedingly curious. As we set out from Baysford Station, Thorndyke looked at his watch and he noted the time. You will take us the way that Pratt went, he said. As to that, said the inspector, he may have gone by the road or by the footpath, but there's very little difference in the distance. Turning away from Baysford, we walked along the road westward towards the village of Thorpe and presently passed on our right a stile at the entrance to a footpath. That path, said the inspector, crosses the avenue about halfway up, but we'd better keep to the road. A quarter of a mile further on we came to a pair of rusty iron gates, one of which stood open, and entering we found ourselves in a broad drive, bordered by two rows of trees, between the trunks of which a long stretch of pasture meadows could be seen on either hand. It was a fine avenue, and late in the year as it was, the yellowing foliage clustered thickly overhead. When we had walked about a hundred and fifty yards from the gates, the inspector halted. This is the place, he said, and Thorndyke again noted the time. Nine minutes exactly, said he. Then Pratt arrived here about fourteen minutes to seven, and his body was found at five minutes to seven, nine minutes after his arrival. The murderer couldn't have been far away then. Now, nah, it's a pretty fresh scent, replied the inspector. You'd like to see the body first, I think you said, sir. Yes, and the knife, if you please. I shall have to send down to the station for that. It's locked up in the office. He entered the house, and having dispatched a messenger to the police station, came out and conducted us to the outbuilding where the corpse had been deposited. Thorndyke made a rapid examination of the wounds and the holes in the clothing, neither of which presented anything particularly suggestive. The weapon used has evidently been a thick-backed, single-edged knife, similar to the one described, and the discoloration around the wounds indicated that the weapon had a definite shoulder, like that of a Norwegian knife, and that it had been driven in with savage violence. Did you find anything that throws any light on the case? The inspector asked when the examination was concluded. That is impossible to say until we have seen the knife, replied Thorndyke. But while we are waiting for it, 
he may as well go and look at the scene of the tragedy. These are Pratt's boots, I think. He lifted a pair of stout laced boots from the table and turned them up to inspect the soles. Yes, those are his boots, replied Fox, and pretty easy they'd been to the track if the case had been the other way about. Those Blakey's protectors are as good as a trademark. We'll take them at any rate, said Thorndyke, and the inspector having taken the boots from him, we went out and retraced our steps down the avenue. The place where the murder had occurred was easily identified by a large dark stain on the gravel at one side of the drive, halfway between two trees, an ancient pollard hornbeam and an elm. Next to the elm was a pollard oak, with a squat, warty hole about seven feet high, and three enormous limbs, of which one slanted halfway across the avenue, and between these two trees the ground was covered with the tracks of men and hounds, superimposed upon the hoofprints of a horse. Where was the knife found? Thorndyke asked. The inspector indicated a spot near the middle of the drive, almost opposite the hornbeam, and Thorndyke, picking up a large stone, laid it on the spot. Then he surveyed the scene thoughtfully, looking up and down the drive, and at the trees that bordered it, and finally walked slowly to the space between the elm and the oak, scanning the ground as he went. There is no dearth of footprints, he remarked grimly, as he looked down at the trampled earth. No, but the question is, whose are they? said the inspector. Yes, that is the question, agreed Thorndyke, and we will begin the solution by identifying those of Pratt. I don't see how that will help us, said the inspector. We know he was here. Thorndyke looked at him in surprise, and I must confess that the foolish remark astonished me too, accustomed as I was to the quick-witted officers from Scotland Yard. The hue and cry procession, remarked Thorndyke, seems to have passed out between the elm and the oak. Elsewhere the ground seems pretty clear. He walked round the elm, still looking earnestly at the ground, and presently continued. Now here, in the soft earth bordering the turf, are the prints of a pair of smallish feet wearing pointed boots, another short man, evidently, by the size of foot and length of stride, and he doesn't seem to have belonged to the procession. But I don't see any of Pratt's. He doesn't seem to have come off the hard gravel. He continued to walk slowly towards the hornbeam, with his eyes fixed on the ground. Suddenly he halted, and stooped with an eager look at the earth, and as Fox and I approached it, he stood up and pointed. Pratt's footprints! faint and fragmentary but unmistakable and now inspector you see the importance they furnish the time factor in respect of the other footprints look at this one and then look at that he pointed from one to another of the faint impressions of the dead man's feet you mean that there are signs of a struggle said fox i mean more than that replied thorndyke here is one of pret's footprints treading into the print of a small pointed foot and there, at the edge of the gravel, is another of Pratt's, nearly obliterated by the tread of a pointed foot. Obviously the first pointed footprint was made before Pratt's, and the second one after his, and the necessary inference is that the owner of the pointed foot was here at the same time as Pratt. Then he must have been the murderer, exclaimed Fox. Presumably, answered Thorndyke. But let us see whither he went. You notice in the first place that the man stood close to this tree, he indicated the hornbeam, and that he went towards the elm. Let us follow him. He passes the elm, you see, and you will observe that these tracks from a regular series leading from the hornbeam are not mixed up with the marks of the struggle. They were, therefore, probably made after the murder had been perpetrated. You will also notice that they pass along the backs of the trees, outside the avenue, that is. What does that suggest to you? It suggests to me, I said, when the inspector had shaken his head hopelessly, that there was possibly someone in the avenue when the man was stealing off. Precisely, said Thorndyke. 
The body was found more than nine minutes after Pret arrived here, but the murder must have taken some time. Then the housekeeper thought she heard someone calling and came out with a lantern, and at the same time the general and Mr. Hanford came up the drive. The suggestion is that the man sneaked along outside the trees to avoid being seen. However, let us follow the tracks. They pass the elm, and they pass on behind the next tree. But wait, there is something odd here. He passed behind the great pollard oak, and looked down at the soft earth by its roots. Here's a pair of impressions much deeper than the rest, and they're not a part of the track since their toes point towards the tree. What do you make of that? Without waiting for an answer, he began closely to scan the bowl of the tree, and especially a large warty protuberance about three feet from the ground. On the bark above this was a vertical mark, as if something had scraped down the tree, and from the wart itself a dead twig had been newly broken off and lay upon the ground. Pointing to these marks, Thorndyke set his foot on the protuberance and, springing up, brought his eye above the level of the crown, whence the great boughs branched off. Ah! he exclaimed. Here's something much more definite. With the aid of another projection, he scrambled up onto the crown of the tree, and having glanced quickly round, beckoned to us. I stepped up on the projecting lump, and as my eyes rose above the crown, I perceived the brown, shiny impression of a hand on the edge. Climbing into the crown, I was quickly followed by the inspector, and we both stood up by Thorndyke between the three boughs. From where we stood, we looked on the upper side of the great limb that swept out across the avenue, and there, on its lichen-covered surface, we saw the imprints in reddish-brown of a pair of open hands. "'You notice,' said Thorndyke, leaning out upon the bough, "'that he is a short man. I cannot conveniently place my hands so low. You also note that he has both forefingers intact, and so is certainly not Ellis.' "'If you mean to say, sir, that these marks were made by the murderer,' said Fox, "'I say it's impossible.' Why, that would mean that he was here looking down at us when we were searching for him with the hounds. The presence of the hounds proves that this man could not have been the murderer. On the contrary, said Thorndyke, the presence of this man with bloody hands confirms the other evidence, which all indicates that the hounds were never on the murderer's trail at all. Come now, Inspector, I put it to you. Here's a murdered man. The murderer has almost certainly blood upon his hands. And here is a man with bloody hands lurking in a tree within a few feet of the corpse and within a few minutes of its discovery, as is shown by the footprints. What are the reasonable probabilities? But you are forgetting the bloodhound, sir, and the murderer's knife, urged the inspector. Tut, tut, man, exclaimed Thorndyke. Those bloodhounds are a positive obsession. But I see a sergeant coming up the drive with a knife, I hope. Perhaps that will solve the riddle for us. The sergeant, who carried a small dispatch box, halted opposite the tree in some surprise while we descended, when he came forward with a military salute, and handed the box to the inspector, who forthwith unlocked it, and opening the lid, displayed an object wrapped in a pocket handkerchief. "'This is a knife, sir,' said he, "'just as I received it. The handkerchief is a sergeant's.' Thorndyke unrolled the handkerchief, and took from it a large-sized Norwegian knife, which he looked at critically, and then handed to me. While I was inspecting the blade, he shook out the handkerchief, and, having looked it over on both sides, turned to the sergeant. "'At what time did you pick up this knife?' he asked. "'About seven-fifteen, sir, directly after the hounds had started. I was careful to pick it up by the ring, and I wrapped it in the handkerchief at once.' Seven-fifteen, said Thorndyke. "'Less than half an hour after the murder. That is very singular. You observe the state of this handkerchief? There is not a mark on it.' Not a trace of any bloodstain, which proves that when the knife was picked up, 
The blood on it was already dry, but things dry slowly, if they are dry at all, in the saturated air of an autumn evening. The appearances seemed to suggest that the blood on the knife was dry when it was thrown down. By the way, Sergeant, what do you scent your handkerchief with? Scent, sir? exclaimed the astonished officer in indignant accents. Me scent me handkerchief? No, sir, certainly not. Never used scent in my life, sir. Thorndyke held out the handkerchief, and the sergeant sniffed at it incredulously. It certainly does seem to smell of scent, he admitted, but it must be the knife. The same idea having occurred to me, I applied the handle of the knife to my nose, and instantly detected a sickly sweet odour of musk. Question is, said the inspector, when the two articles had been tested by us all, was it the knife that scented the handkerchief, or the handkerchief that scented the knife? You heard what the sergeant said, replied Thorndyke. There was no scent on the handkerchief when the knife was wrapped in it. Do you know, inspector, this scent seems to me to offer a very curious suggestion. Consider the facts of the case. The distinct trail leading straight to Ellis, who is nevertheless found to be without a scratch or a spot of blood, the inconsistencies in the case that I pointed out in the train, and now this knife, apparently dropped with dried blood in it and scented with musk. To me it suggests a carefully planned, coolly premeditated crime. The murderer knew about the general's bloodhounds and made use of them as a blind. He planted this knife smeared with blood and tainted with musk, to furnish a scent. No doubt some object also scented with musk would be drawn over the ground to give the trail. It is only a suggestion, of course, but it is worth considering. But, sir, the inspector objected eagerly, if the murderer had handled the knife, it would have scented him too. Exactly. So, as we are assuming that the man is not a fool, we may assume that he did not handle it. He will have left it here in readiness, hidden in some place whence he could knock it down, say, with a stick, without touching it. Perhaps in this very tree, sir, suggested the sergeant, pointing to the oak. No, said Thorndyke. He would hardly have hidden in the tree where the knife had been. The hounds might have scented the place instead of following the trail at once. The most likely hiding place for the knife is the one nearest the spot where it was found. He walked over to the stone that marked the spot and looked round, continued. You see, that hornbeam is much the nearest, and its flat crown will be very convenient for the purpose easily reached even by a short man as he appears to be let us see if there are any traces of it perhaps you will give me a back-up sergeant as we haven't a ladder the sergeant assented with a faint grin and snooping beside the tree in an attitude suggesting the game of leapfrog placed his hands firmly on his knees grasping a stout branch thorndyke swung himself up on the sergeant's broad back whence he looked down into the crown of the tree then parting the branches he stepped onto the ledge and disappeared into the central hollow when he reappeared, he held in his hands two very singular objects, a pair of iron crucible tongs and an artist's brush case of black japanned tin. The former article he handed down to me, but the brush case he held carefully by its wire handle as he dropped to the ground. The significance of these things is, I think, obvious, he said. The tongs were used to handle the knife with, and the case to carry it in, so that it should not scent his clothes or bag. It was very carefully planned. If that is so, said the inspector, the inside of the case ought to smell a musk. No doubt, said Thorndyke. But before we open it, there is a rather important matter to be attended to. Will you give me the vitogen powder, Jervis? I opened the canvas-covered research case and took from it an object like a diminutive pepper-caster, an iodiform dredger, in fact, and handed it to him. Grasping the brush case by its wire handle, he sprinkled the pale yellow powder from the dredger freely all round the pull-off lid, tapping the top with his knuckles to make the fine particles spread. 
Then he blew off the superfluous powder, and the two police officers gave a simultaneous gasp of joy. For now, on the black background, there stood out plainly a number of fingerprints, so clear and distinct that the ridge pattern could be made out with perfect ease. These will probably be his right hand, said Thorndyke. Now for the left. He treated the body of the case in the same way, and when he had blown off the powder, the entire surface was spotted with yellow oval impressions. Now, Jervis, said he, if you'll put on a glove and pull off the lid, we can test the inside. There was no difficulty in getting the lid off, for the shoulder of the case had been smeared with Vaseline, apparently to produce an airtight joint, and as it separated with a hollow sound, a faint musky odour exhaled from its interior. The remainder of the inquiry, said Thorndyke, when I pushed the lid on again, will be best conducted at the police station, where also we can photograph these fingerprints. The shortest way will be across the meadows, said Fox, the way the owls went. By this route we accordingly travelled, Thorndyke carrying the brush case tenderly by its handle. I don't see where Ellis comes in in his job, said the inspector as we walked along. If the fellow had a grudge against Pratt, they weren't chums. I think I do, said Thorndyke. You say that both men were prison officers at Portland at the same time. Now doesn't it seem likely that this is the work of some old convict who had been identified and perhaps blackmailed by Pratt and possibly by Ellis too? That is where the value of the fingerprints comes in. If he is an old lag, his prints will be at Scotland Yard. Otherwise, they are not of much value as a clue. That's true, sir, said the inspector. I suppose you want to see Ellis. I want to see that purse that you spoke of first, replied Thorndyke. That is probably the other end of the clue. As soon as we arrived at the station, the inspector unlocked a safe and brought out a parcel. These are Ellis's things, said he, as he unfastened it, and that is the purse. He handed Thorndyke a small pigskin pouch, which my colleague opened, and having smelt the inside, passed to me. The odour of musk was plainly perceptible, especially in the small compartment at the back. It has probably tainted the other contents of the parcel, said Thorndyke, sniffing at each article in turn, but my sense of smell is not keen enough to detect any scent. They all seem odourless to me, whereas the purse smells quite distinctly. Shall we have Ellis in now? The sergeant took a key from a locked drawer, and departed for the cells, whence he presently reappeared accompanied by the prisoner, a stout burly man in the last stage of dejection. "'Come, cheer up, Ellis,' said the inspector. "'Here's Dr. Thorndyke come down to help us, and he wants to ask you one or two questions.' Ellis looked piteously at Thorndyke and exclaimed, "'I know nothing whatever about the affair, sir. I swear to God I don't.' "'I never supposed you did,' said Thorndyke. "'But there are one or two things that I want you to tell me. To begin with, that purse, where did you find it?' "'On the Thorpe Road, sir. It was lying in the middle of the footway.' "'Had anyone else passed the spot lately? Did you meet?' or pass anyone. Yes, sir, I met a labourer about a minute before I saw the purse. I can't imagine why he didn't see it. Probably because it wasn't there, said Thorndyke. Is there a hedge there? Yes, sir, a hedge on the low bank. Ha, ah, well, now tell me, is there anyone about here whom you know when you and Pratt were together at Portland? Any old lack, to put it bluntly, whom you and Pratt have been putting the screw on? No, sir, I swear there isn't. But I wouldn't answer for Pratt. He had a rare memory for faces. Thorndyke reflected. Were there any escapes from Portland in your time? he asked. Only one, a man named Dobbs. He made off to the sea in a sudden fog, and he was supposed to be drowned. His clothes washed up in a bill, but not his body. Anyway, he was never heard of again. Thank you, Ellis. Do you mind my taking your fingerprints? Only not, sir, was the almost eager reply, and the office inking pad being requisitioned, a rough set of fingerprints was produced, and when Thorndyke had compared them with those in the brush case, had found no resemblance. 
Ellis returned to his cell in quite buoyant spirits. Having made several photographs of the strange fingerprints, we returned to town that evening, taking the negatives with us, and while we waited for our train, Thorndyke gave a few parting injunctions to the inspector. Remember, he said, that the man must have washed his hands before he could appear in public. Search the banks of every pond, ditch, and stream in the neighbourhood for footprints like those in the avenue, and if you find any, search the bottom of the water thoroughly, for he is quite likely to have dropped the knife into the mud. The photographs, which we handed in at Scotland Yard that same night, enabled the experts to identify the fingerprints as those of Francis Dobbs, an escaped convict. The two photographs, profile and full face, which were attached to his record, were sent down to Baseford with a description of the man, and were in due course identified with a somewhat mysterious individual who passed by the name of Rufus Pembury, and who had lived in the neighbourhood as a private gentleman for some two years. But Rufus Pembury was not to be found, either at his genteel house or elsewhere. All that was known was that on the day after the murder he had converted his entire personality into bearer securities and then vanished from mortal ken, nor has he ever been found or heard of to this day. In between ourselves, said Thorndyke, when we were discussing the case some time after, he deserved to escape. It was clearly a case of blackmail, and to kill a blackmailer when you have no other defence against him is hardly murder. As to Ellis, he could never have been convicted, and Dobbs or Pembry must have known it, for he would have been committed to the assizes, and that would have given time for all traces to disappear. No, Dobbs was a man of courage, ingenuity, and resource, and above all, he knocked the bottom out of the great bloodhound superstition. End of section four.